Have you ever wondered to yourself if you should leave or quit something? Maybe you want to leave your job, or quit your degree, or do you even want to leave your own home? The thing is, we all leave things, often not knowing if it was the right decision or not. This podcast talks to people who have made the decision to leave, and each of them have their own unique story, both challenges and triumphs. Some left to try different things, others even return to where they were originally left from. My name is Braden Green, and I left university to pursue my radio and podcasting dream. And this is Leavers. Tim Brenton's story is an inspiring as it is a thrilling one. The former Adelaide 36er and Hobart Devil enjoyed a short stint in the National Basketball League, but it is really after his sporting career finished that Tim found a passion for caring and helping youth. This passion would see Tim's life change drastically and would lead him to more places than just the court. We start today's Lever podcast episode at the moment when Tim decided to leave Family's SA. Thanks for joining me today, Tim. I really appreciate coming on the Lever's podcast, mate. Well, thanks for having me, Braden. We'll start where we always start, mate. Why did you leave Family's SA? Well, uh, after nine years working with uh, children, young people in care, it does do a, a lot to your mental health. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. Would, uh, and anyone getting into that industry, I always say, have a time frame on yourself. So I had plans to maybe stay for five years and got my permanency. And when you get your permanency with the SA government, there's a lot of, you know, there's a good super and there's good leave entitlement. So you do get, um, I'm not sucked in, but there are there are some things that you think, well, if I leave, I won't get that stuff. But, you know, I lasted nine years and probably four years too long on reflection. Really? Um, met some very, very special kids and young people in some really traumatic situations and some stories that will break your heart. Met some amazing people as well, some amazing adults who do some incredible work. But you also meet some people that do question, you do question a lot of things, their practice, um, the way we talk to kids, the way we consequence kids. And I must say there were times where I was definitely in the wrong in some of the ways um, <clears throat> that we dealt with certain situations and then it really does affect you up once you leave your, your shift and very similar shifts to the police and the ambos. You know, you're 7 till 3, 3 to 11, 11 till 7 at night. So then you start questioning about uh, your health around, um, you know, shift work. Yeah. So, yeah, it was um, – as you get close to uh, your long service and all that kind of stuff, it does impact you. But then I thought it was going to be a very easy decision because I did feel like my spirit and my soul had sort of been dwindling a little bit just because of um, the trauma, the um, the vicarious trauma of being around such uh, such children and young people. So let's go through that, man. There's obviously a lot in this job that you have to be prepared, like just prepared mentally, essentially. It is almost going into that. Was in that you you say that was really a massive factor and you talk about how it was four years too long why was it four years too long was it just were you shot at that point what 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 made you know like hey i went on too long yeah no i i it's a really good question there was a there was an actual moment on a christmas eve where i had my own children at the time and being six foot seven and my wife six foot we've got tall children both our girls hannah and abby are tall girls yeah but we had a, a young person come to our unit who was all of eight or nine years of age at the time and he um, he was worried that Father Christmas wasn't going to come to the unit that night, being Christmas Eve, and uh, we had a real hard time getting him to bed and convincing him that Father Christmas was going to come to the unit. And once we finally settled that situation down, I really had a, a hard time for the first time controlling my emotions where I was inconsolable. I was just distraught. So I spent the 40-minute drive home basically crying and, got home and I was crying and 
I think I was so upset because just when I was trying to talk to that young person, calm them down and reassure them, all I could see was my own kids going, my kids are younger than you, although they're taller than you because he was only a little person. <laughs> it really – so from that moment on, I lasted about another three years, but from that moment I really – my emotional management was get, was impacted where I wasn't able to stay centred, stay grounded because it became more of an emotional journey and you, it was really, really difficult to, to continue working in those environments. So I tried a few other roles in you know, special programs, coordinator and um, one below the supervisor and things like that, but still it's a very difficult industry and you, you take your hat off to anyone that works in the industry. You take your hat off to the kids the most because... You know, being removed from your family environment because of care concerns and trauma and abuse, it, it's it's a really hard to get good outcomes. And there's a lot of good people out there, but you know, deep down, they're all good kids. And I've always said you don't actually meet a bad kid. You you meet kids that are in really bad situations. So let's get into that, mate. There's, I think we even have to take a step back here, really, going into this. How do you actually separate yourself? Like from those seeing your own kids, really in those kids, you know what I mean. You, you were saying that you got to a point where you saw it. How did you do it previously? Really, did you did that? Was there ever situations where you got into that, or was it just because it must be a real challenge? We hear a lot of this with teachers as well when they teach kids. It's actually really hard to separate. So, how did you go about that? Well, it was it was a situation that was uh, almost not forced upon. That's probably not the right word, but. There was a, a dramatic shift in the way you work with young people. Uh, in my first three to five years um, restraining um, kids who were, you know, displaying really negative and dangerous behaviours was a thing. Uh, it wasn't uncommon to go on a shift and restrain a young person, which is, you know, it's very difficult to reflect on that mm. back in the day, knowing that that was the industry you worked in. But then about in my fourth year, they brought in the Special Investigation Unit. They increased their psychology department and started thinking about and, you know, managing new ways and managing situations quite differently. So that that definitely impacted. And the example that I have was you could have a key worker as a young person and it's their birthday. And just because you think you're a good human being that you want to do things like throw them a Christmas, oh, sorry, a birthday party and give them a present only to be told that's actually not the right strategy for this young person. And it's just little things like that where you go, wow, I, it's really hard to get your head around. But yeah. I must say those things that I just spoke about, they, they were the right strategies for young people in those situations. It sounds strange, but so there was a huge culture shift at the time. And to be a part of that culture shift, I saw a lot of people lose their job. I saw a lot of people lose their mental health. I saw a lot of people lose their relationships because of the dramatic shift in having a more physical approach with kids, such as the restraints as we talked about and physically stopping kids from trying to run away, where the, one of the examples is they really shifted and it's still there today where if a young person wants to you know, consider themselves AWOL from the unit, then there's more of those um, preventative strategies rather than the physical strategies of letting a... 12-year-old go. So Which so, is, it, so when you're confronted with stuff like that, it's really, really challenging. It sounds like, to me it does, it sounds like a positive change in culture. So was it a positive change in culture, you think? Oh, most definitely. And, and what it did was it really brought some really incredible thinkers from around the world. And psychology has had a great impact on, on a lot of industries, education as you spoke about before. So the introduction of increasing your psychology department and increasing uh, the staff's um, ability to access psychology services was good. But 
I think when you you know when you try and change an industry overnight, there's always going to be some road bumps from people that have been in the industry a longer time than I had. So, yeah. did did you have any road bumps yourself? You think in that? Oh joke? my word, my word. Yes. <laughs> okay, we got a few here. <laughs> <laughs> and look, some of those road bumps are you know really proud moments, and then there's some where you just look at yourself and go, "Wow, I, I really do regret." That action, I regret those words and, you know, for confidentiality reasons, I can't go into those. But, yeah. you know, there was definitely um, more than one occasion where I said the wrong thing to a young person in the heat of the moment. There oh, was yeah. definitely times where we probably, um, we set up incidents and um, restraints could have been avoided for sure. But, um, you know... Uh, a person that I really uh, do admire and respect, Great he always said you always give people the reason of doubt that they're doing the very best they can on any particular day. Mm-hmm. So that, and, that, and I can honestly say we, all of us went on trying to do the best we could on any particular day and some days you had off moments and when you are um, working and managing and living and working with the, the kids, it's a very high-profile industry that isn't talked about a lot because people sort of want to not talk about it. Young people in care. I think oh, it's, it's it's a taboo topic, isn't it? And that's the thing. It, I always find it interesting when we talk about taboo mm. topics because usually these conversations are needed to be had. Yep. And I think what's interesting in your case as well that you've you've looked in the past and go, "Why we need to? Some things need to change." Here. Yes, and that's yeah. incredibly brave of you. And incredible, I think that's a real positive sign of the industry. <laughs> if anything, like hey, we can do better. And I think. With that's a real credit to you, I think. Um, so I guess when that positive change came came into it, and I know you were saying you were there for four to four long, four years too long. Were you ever tempted to stay though? Was there all, all, ever that temptation to like, if I just come out, if I just said I'm like, I can get my long service leave at ten years maybe, or is it that sort of thing? Is it is it purely money? Is it put you know these kids really need me? What what's going through your mind if if that ever crossed your mind really? Yeah, that's a really good question. Again, um, I'm a really uh, fairly free-flowing person deep down. Uh, I don't take a lot of risks financially. I like to minimalist type of lifestyle, my wife and I. So financially having two kids and having permanency, there is an attraction to stay there for a very long time. Most definitely. But, you know, in those environments we talked about where young people's mental health is suffering and the people that you work with, your their health is suffering and personally your own mental health is suffering, money can't buy that stuff back. So for me it was a quite a seamless transition. And uh, at the time my dad had bought a pub in Western Australia uh, and then he was trying to get me to – I was visiting there a little bit, just doing some work for him in the school holidays or when I took some leave. And he was doing uh, with his own brother um, six weeks on, six weeks off so mum and dad could still spend some time together and that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, I was sort of tying up, toying up whether to go into that industry um, or just going and doing private enterprise and setting up a little business and seeing if a program called Rock and Ward would work, which we knew was working with the kids in care, but... Unfortunately, um, through our well, through government process and changes of government, the funding we had for the Rock and Water program was taken away. But we had seen so many amazing therapeutic outcomes for kids using that program that I knew deep down that schools would be interested in such an approach. So I sort of, I think, naturally had a 
not oh, don't, you don't I don't like when people say I'm an entrepreneur, but you have that idea that you think maybe there's some potential, yeah. and quite amazingly, um, the uh, the government of oh, what's the word the government official the government. <laughs> person who was way above me in their rank um who defunded the rock and water program and uh the program we'd set up really successfully she was the person that made the call that we wouldn't continue but then she was the first person to put a lead on to us because she knew a principal of someone that made like it outside of my work with families SA at the time and did it at one school and one school loved it and then sort of that just evolved into a natural process of uh co-founding an organization called connect yourself so let's go into both of these things because Rock and Water uh, Central is a very important part, obviously. And then we've also got your connect, connected self, those. Yep, connected self. self. Yep. So those two are very important. And you've had a really nice transition into that because not a lot of people get that transition. So can you explain to us more about those two businesses? Start wherever you want. Well, the first one is uh, the Rock and Water program. So I came across the program by chance in uh, 2005. Uh, where we were asked to do it in my time with Fems SA as a youth worker. So that was quite an upskilling and quite a a life-changing moment because I'd never experienced anything such as yoga or martial arts or any Eastern philosophy that teaches the principles of centering and grounding. And the fact that I'm a little uh, ADHD, ADD, bouncy type of person <laughs> uh, to experience being centered and grounded and continuously through exercise, play and activity, it was quite an awakening moment and... And then uh, got asked to do the next level of training and from that level of training I uh, formed a very close relationship which I still have with the founder and author of the program called Freak Aikima. Yep. And he's uh, a gentleman in his 70s. He comes from the Netherlands and he wrote the program 25 years ago and him and I are very close to this day. So um, what we actually saw by using the program with the kids in care, the kids that were living in care I should say, is um, what their behaviours in the units are always going to be um, coming from a trauma background because yeah. they're living in care so you've got personal reminders that you've been taken away from home and you're a bad person, all this stuff. Yeah. So the model that we created within Families SA was to take them out of the unit environments and go on camps and take them to really significant places where there were lots of rock and water such as Mount Gambier and Kangaroo Island, all these places. Very nice places. Yeah, well, the symbolism of rock and water was there as well. So what we actually did was we took uh, 10 of... 10 young people, 10 boys, and they all had a mentor and we had a psychology team attached to it too. And we did some pub published uh, documents from the findings of the program that are on the, in, on the website. Yep. But where I guess the biggest thing we knew was we can't actually say that rock and water was therapy. What we could say was it had therapeutic intent because it was really bringing the kids and the key workers closer together. Yeah. And I guess from that experience I knew if – Adults and kids' connections are stronger than anything is possible in any setting. So for any person in a supporting role with kids, it might be a carer, NDIS, it might be a teacher, it might be an SSO, if you've got a strategy and by using a metaphor like are you rock, are you water as your way of connecting and engaging with the kid, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. And it's what you do beyond that that's most important. So what I would say is rock and water is a, it's a great connection and engagement tool. It's scientifically proven now, but it's – a really amazing program because it's active, it's energetic, but there's, you know, it's all about being center grounded and connecting with others. So, nice. yeah. so on, and then basically you've, you've done this program for how long now? Since 2005. So what happened then was, as I was going back a step is I, uh, I uh, started with one school and I'm pretty sure it was Jeps Cross Primary School, which is no more. Yeah. And then Jeps Cross really liked it. 
and then they would put me onto another school, and they put me onto another school. Then that school led me to another school, and that was really where I had some deeper conversations with my two co-founders of Connected Self that this could be my way of earning some money yeah. and being a part of uh, Connected Self, which is uh, yeah. And so, what's connected in Connected Self? Is that like a similar? So, Connected Self is an amazing organisation, um, South Australian organisation, co-founded by myself uh, and two other men, uh, Sean Lappin and Ivan Raymond. Yep. And um, we all met while we were in community residential care, part of Families SA. Um, and uh, they they had a vision, but they also knew they needed someone on the ground that would do this stuff with children and young people. Yep. That really formed in about 2009, I think, for memory, where it just started to really build momentum. So currently connect itself, I think, employ about 70 South Australians, uh, psychologists. That's a really well good, art, good achievement. By yeah, the way, art therapists, play therapists, you know, um, uh, NDIS support, mentors, they offer training. It really is, yeah, special what they do. It's clear to see, mate, you've got a passion for helping young people and just helping. And the great thing is you help so many young people as well, all different backgrounds by the sound of it, all different situations. When we talk to kids like this, when we, when we, no matter what their age in that bracket, wherever they've come from, is it a simple case-by-case kind of how you go into helping them out or with the rock and water principle is there like a um like a framework really that mm. you can help them or is it more like you have to develop each one for them like how do you go about that look you raise you've we could sit here and talk for days on those uh, three <laughs> points that you made and i think you, you make some really good points there but i think the biggest one that i always go back to is connection so you know one of the things that now that i'm into deeper into my own own business um about if in my role with Adelaide Lightning which I'm sure we'll touch on later it's about connection engagement entertainment right when you're working in a in a setting such as working with kids in care it's around connection engagement and education you want to upskill people as much as you can yeah and where teachers sometimes fall flat or social workers or psychologists is they just want to get straight into it they don't actually value that connection point so Really what I love about any young person I've met is how do I connect with them? Being a basketballer, being six foot seven, a high five is socially acceptable in most <laughs> settings. So the moment you give a young person a high five and you make eye contact and just smile and ask them how they're going, um, you know, magic happens. So, you know, the beauty about rock and water, going back to that program, is it, it's a great tool to connect, engage and educate, but it's really the starting point of just building a relationship and trying to help kids make sense of this very, very chaotic world. So I know you guys that are here tonight are very young men. I'm 47 and I'm happy I grew up in the era, era that I grew up because I tell people now I think my whole childhood was based on air. If I had air in my tyres, I could get around. Yeah. Uh, if I had air in my football and my basketball, I was a happy guy. Um, so if I didn't have those things, my life was chaotic. But today we have so many factors. The kids are in... Someone called, I was in Darwin last week doing some training, delivering some training, and someone called it infobesity. Oh, I, that's a that's a. Good and I word thought that was it. a really good way of saying these kids are just really obese in information. They, they are just the amount of information kids receive. So, any educator in 2021, you are basically trying to help them make sense of this chaotic world. So, what you were trying to say to me before is a really good point with the connection and the engagement. And the other valuable thing is. Um, the validation 
So if you see someone that's happy, and I see, I say to you now, I noticed you were in a good mood when I walked in tonight. I, I connected with you straight away. Yeah. If you see someone that's, you know, you looks a little bit down, their head's down, their chin's down, you say to a young person, I noticed you're looking a little upset today. Is everything okay? So it's like reading the body language essentially. Yeah, but it's validating that moment for them. Yeah. So you talked about framework and that's where the beauty of psychology comes in because they'll be able to detail A to Z uh, what's going on, the framework you provided, where a lot of youth workers that I knew, they had really poor school experiences. Oh, but, yeah. No. But that's what makes them great youth workers. So youth workers and teachers are very similar beasts. They just speak different languages. Well, it's interesting that you've, you've gone into, into that because, like, what do you think makes a good youth worker, essentially? Because, I mean, you would have seen all different types. You saw the cultural change and you saw how people react to that. So I feel like you've got a really good idea of what is required of a youth worker and what people should look for in a youth worker. Yeah, look, youth worker or teacher, I think the first thing that people uh, quite forget to look at is do you like kids and young people (laughs) without being this regarded as a real creepy person that just wants to hang around kids. Like there are people out there and I've met so many amazing people that just genuinely like the company of kids. They feed off the energy of kids and young people. And so I think first and foremost you've actually got to like them because there's plenty of people out there that would – I can remember a few high school teachers that, um, let's say teaching was their second preference. (laughs) (laughs) Look, so, yeah, and look, the more I've gone into it, I think, um, you know, you've got to be really, really clear on why you're doing it and because it is a profession. So, and I think a lot of times in today's world, you know, nothing against any psychologist or doctor, they've done a really good job creating physios. They talk about their practice. Yeah, but I really believe your SSOs have got a a, a practice. You know, yeah. a youth worker has their own practice. Um, they may not have an office with a fancy door that says "Welcome to my practice." Yeah, but they need a practice, and that's where the, you know the support of people around you that have um, higher education can come in to make even a, a great, good youth worker a great youth worker. But you know, good communication skills is definitely another a really valuable thing, and I think some people get misled that you know because they had a bad experience as a kid they could be a good youth worker or they they had a psychologist so they want to become a psychologist and i've always said you know people that have struggled with addiction don't make the best drug counselors or the best gambling counselors just because of that so some people say life experience is good and even though it's well worth it well valued i I still think liking kids and good communication skills is a good starting point yeah so on that in these programs and obviously they've grown from from basically from each one that you've done basically and it was able to you talk about going from that jeps cross from that starting point how much growth do you think that programs have like this like rock and water central is there a lot more growth that needs to be done do you think rock and water will really explode really and we'll just see it like everywhere should it like be incorporated to national curriculums do you think there is a lot more growth that we need to do and should do yeah, look, I honestly do. Um, and, of course, I'm going to be biased and say rock and water should be uh, part of the curriculum. <laughs> That's probably a good thing. That shows yeah. passion. <laughs> uh, but one thing I'll say about that is, and I say this a lot when I deliver the training around Australia, is that if you saturate people with too much, they'll get sick of it as well. Oh, yeah. So rock and water needs to be complementary to other programs. It needs to be complementary to other strategies like restorative journeys is an example where they do some amazing work around Australia. I really think it's a complementary 
programs that work together. There's other programs called Players Away, Blue Earth, uh, Drumbeat, you know, Rhythm to Recovery. They're really good programs, but, you know, I think by mixing them all into physical education and health is probably the best strategy. Um, not saying, oh, we're all rock and water because yeah, it, people, you've got to be so careful you don't saturate kids before they say, can you stick your rock and water up your tail? Basically. Oh, I did. Yeah. It's interesting that it, that must be a difficult balance even for, do you think you, do you have those problems even in your own program sometimes and you've got to watch that, like, hey, are we pushing these kids too much now or, you know, is there not enough? That's a difficult balance. How do you go about restoring that balance? Yeah, and I've got to be careful because sometimes my commercial head hat will be on too much. Yeah. But your your approach to a year five in rock and water is going to be far different to a year 12 student where a year 12 student is really concerned about their time. They're really concerned about their exams. Yeah. So if I ask a kid to come on a 10 year 12 who's going to do an eight-week program and I'm going to take 90 minutes out of their day for eight weeks, I think is the wrong strategy. Oh, yeah. Whereas a grade five student in any school I think would benefit greatly from from a program like rock and water. But there's other amazing programs out there as well. Yeah, well, and you got, you only got to look at you know, programs like mindfulness now. Like people have known this for years, uh, Oxford University and all these places. They've they've been doing studies for twenty five years. It's just that places like Australia take a little take a little while to catch up. But there's <laughs> there's other things out there, and I don't want to seem like I'm bagging rock water because I'm not. But I think a a really holistic approach to any delivery to young people needs consideration because. The needs of a young person that goes to Elizabeth Downs Primary School is very different to Uindamu School. No, oh, it's in the, so. If we just say to teachers, "Do this, do this, do this," by the time they get to their classroom, they quickly notice. Well, that's actually not going to work in my classroom because my kids have these needs as well. Before we get into your, your sporting career and we get into the Adelaide Lightning and the Adelaide Thirty Sixes, what is something that the public can do for one to help more youth in trouble, and what's something that the government can do? Really good question. I, because we used to employ, I think at one stage we had 13 psychologists at Connect Yourself and I think they may have maybe the same or more. I yeah. don't really know. I shouldn't say. <laughs> when I used to speak with families and mums and dads, they would say to me, oh, my kid needs to see a psychologist. I'd say, well, why don't you go? You know, And use it as a training and development exercise, not to say that there's anything wrong with you at the time, but go learn from an expert. Go talk to them about your issues and then what you're experiencing at the family uh, home or whatever's happening and, and use it as a training and development. So I think uh, adults can always upskill and always educate themselves. And I, I, I still believe education needs to focus more on uh, health and well-being for sure. Yeah. yeah, what we're seeing in kids, the, the research will tell you that. And I think the, the schools that are the most progressive at the moment have a real focus on that. So do you think, I guess in that situation where you're saying, well, kid needs to go see a psychologist, do you think some people just remove themselves from the situation and go, nope, your problem? Look, that's that can be part of it. Yep. And I think a lot of it too is, you know, we've seen such a huge shift in the way two parents working, high incomes, yeah. high mortgage, two cars, you know, the world has shifted dramatically. We've also handed children, young people, adult devices and then asked them to explain how to use them. Yeah. As adults, because we, as adults, we don't, the kids know more about how how to use them and how to get the most out of them. And yeah, you know, they grew up with it, really. I guess when other generations haven't, so it's. And I've had this discussion with my own daughters and my own niece just on the weekend. I want a new phone, but do you want to ring anyone, or is this more of a 
is this device more for your social life these days? So taking the word phone away, this device that activates your social life in so many different platforms. And I think the real trick for kids now is they're managing so many relationships. I don't know your ages, boys, but I didn't have to manage all these friendships on TikTok (laughs) and Snapchat. And, you know, I've got relationships by email through work and I've got a couple of mates, but people have a lot more relationships that they have to manage now. So I think, I think being responsive to kids and young people back on adults to upskill. So it's, it might sound like a pretty obvious question then after hearing that is, how do you think you would have gone in that, in, in these days as, is it, would it have been a bit difficult like in that situation or? When I was playing basketball professionally, if they had all these devices now, I would have been. <laughs> uh, there's a couple of players who I won't mention that, uh, that we would have definitely been sacked a lot earlier. Uh, we probably would have heard our, seen our photos on the back page of the paper a lot sooner. And I really feel sorry for those young kids. As you said before, they make a lot of money, but you know, mental health is skyrocketing against those young men. And you know, knowing people in the AFL industry, and you know, there are some very big concerns. Uh, at a community level, not the corporate level, on the mental health and well-being of uh, of those athletes. So, yeah. um, now back to your question, I probably uh, I would have struggled to manage it for sure. Let's get into your professional athlete career now a little bit. So, for people that didn't know, Tim did play professional basketball for four seasons. Did a little bit of research in the in the NBA. So, let's hope I've gotten this research right. But the first one, I'll just ask you a bit of a general. What's harder, mate? Running a professional business or being a professional athlete? Great question. Um, look, because I was a boy trapped in a man's body as an athlete, uh, it was it, it was easy to be an athlete. It was easy, and to be an yeah. So being um, thrust into it at nineteen, which was um, a wonderful experience, but it, it came by default in a way. Um, and I, I've really enjoyed uh, your podcast and things that you left, and but. Leaving home was the first thing that I thought of coming here tonight because I had to leave home to go to the Institute of Sport at 18. And then in my second year of my scholarship, uh, I was forced to leave in a way because my sister became terminally ill with cancer and she passed away, obviously. But but, uh, And that was very tough for my family. But uh, at the same time, just some things happened on the basketball court for the 36ers that Mike Mackay, the club legend, yeah. Uh, he rolled his ankle and couldn't go to Europe with the Sixers. So they knocked on my door and said, do you want to come to Europe with us? And I was like, okay, I'll come to Europe and <laughs> tour with you guys. And and then uh, was lucky enough to get signed up and played a few games. And then in those two and a half years, uh, had some really horrific injuries. Yeah. Um, and didn't, didn't do the recovery that was needed because I was out and about and mucking about too much what were the injuries um, kind of yeah so uh broke my tibia Ooh. uh snapped my ankle on the inside which was pretty painful wow um the most painful one is my little finger uh that the basketball hit it directly uh it's called a spiral fracture and the bone spiral back into my hand Ooh. Now that was uh quite a and so when you're going through those experiences it's not so much when they happen it's the moments where you're waiting in the x-ray room, waiting to get the result, when you know you've basically broken it and you're just thinking to yourself, eight weeks out, 12 weeks out, takes a long time. Is that a, um, a weird mindset to be in? Because there's not many industries where you go eight weeks. I mean, there are industries where we work outdoors, obviously, but I yeah. guess when yours is 
scrutinised by the media as well. Like we hear, we hear it these days. Someone's broken their foot; they're out for the season or what forever. So, what's your mindset going through that period? Well, the same things as a young man going through your head. But I think the biggest one that people you don't talk a lot about in sports is that is that day to day feedback that you receive, and quite often it's brutal. <laughs> and um, I remember my business partner at Connected Self. He was like, "Man, you got to stop talking like this." Like when we have troubles with the staff member, I would be just like, "Get rid of them." They're gone. They're gone. <laughs> Get rid of them, right? And he was like, "Mate, we're in the we're in the real world here. You actually can't do that. Like, there's legislation. There's there's things that protect people from us just going. Get rid of him. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a bit of an interest, interest, interesting. Uh, it'll be a bit of culture shock almost, I guess, for a few athletes. Being, being a professional athlete, that is your world. And um, uh, so when. Um, when that happens on a day-to-day basis, it, it, it's surreal. And that's why I think a lot of athletes, male and female, do struggle with the, the transfer into what people say is the real world. But it, it is so different. It really is a different world. It's fun and exciting and people adore you and they treat you different. Yeah. And uh, But at the same time, there's other things that set you up for failure as well. What are some of those things that set you up for? Is it is it just that like that culture shock you think, or is there more things to it that that the average punter wouldn't know? Yeah, I heard a story years ago from a member of the AFL Players Association, and he was working with a a, a player that was working with um an AFL player at Carlton, and this player who had a ten year career at Carlton decided to retire, uh, but he was invited back to the family day the following year. And uh, this player rocked up and not one pl- uh, family member or fan on that family day came up Oof. and asked him for an autograph. And he was hanging out with his old teammates. He'd only been retired for six months. That's brutal. And not one person came up and he was devastated from that moment where he realised, who am I now? Like this, I was a footballer from 18 to 28. Where, where, where am I in the world? So if I've got a flash house and a nice guy, it actually doesn't mean anything if you don't know who you are. Yeah. So there's little things like that that people probably don't sit back because, you know, athletes walk a very fine line of confidence and arrogance. And quite often people go, I can't stand that guy, he's arrogant, where when you're an athlete you really need some confidence to put yourself out there. So there's a lot of ways you get set up. Yeah. Well, it's actually an interesting one because it brings me to this next question and you talk about confidence and arrogance. I want... Do you remember one NBL game? And, and this is where I'm interested in asking you about the confidence because there was an NBL game where you scored 13 points inside two minutes. Do you remember that one? Yeah, it's one that yeah, a lot of people come up and talk to me about, which basically shows you how minimal my career was. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's a really nice story to that was. The game was um, against the Sydney Kings and the game was being played against our former captain phil smith as there was a the way phil was forced to leave there was there was a little bit of animosity towards yeah. her and phil was someone that you, he was a legend of the game so there was a little bit extra in the game and i think we were up by 15 or something like that yeah. and so that's basically why i was given a run <laughs> and then i hit those threes and we ended up winning by 30 and the place was just going crazy like the the tight because the, the the crowd back then loved to see the adelaide juniors get on and and, and play. So oh, that yeah. was great. But the side story to that is um, we had to go to Hobart the next day. Yep. And so we're on the team bus. We, we land in Hobart. Back in that day, it's two flights and down the team bus. And uh, the coach at the time, we're on the way to the stadium, asked to speak to me at the front of the bus. 
I said, yeah, cool, no worries. So I go down the front of the bus and he absolutely gave it to me. What? Absolutely <laughs> gave me an absolute ripping into, reminding me that I haven't made it. And um, if, uh, if I thought that last night was good, then I should go and have a good hard look at myself. So... Um, so there's things like that you go, man, it's just a crazy, crazy <laughs> environment that we live in sometimes. What about when you're scoring those points, when you're you're hitting the threes, is it like, I am a superstar now, You what? this is the day that I announce myself, this is where the big contract's coming, you watch the Kings are going to be asking for me, you know, I, what what's going through your head, do you think promotion, I might get starting position next time, What what's going through your head? Yeah, I think at the time you're thinking about just getting your you're trying to get better each game. You're trying to get more minutes each game. Yeah. And uh, my dad used to play for uh, Woodville Footy Club. Yeah. Uh, the old Peckers. And uh, they've turned into Woodville West Torrens. Yeah. So then Woodville West Torrens, uh, they asked dad and myself to come to this. They were having a luncheon. Yeah. But they also invited the coach. And we played the night before and I got no court time. And some guy, when it came to question time, gets up and I'm on stage with a microphone with the coach and some guy goes, why didn't you put him on last night? And I tried to drill him, right? But at, I was just like straight up to the crowd just to say, look, my time will come. I'm still 19, you know, I'm nothing at the moment. This is, I've got to build myself, build myself up for me to be seen that I, I respect that more court time. And everyone clapped and gave me a really nice cheer. And then the coach after we left goes, oh, thank you, because you could have thrown me under the bus. And I said, oh, it's not about throwing me under the bus because it was true. And so when you thought, when you have those moments in time, it's more just about momentum because you, as a shooter, you, you get into a rhythm and there are times where you just can't miss. There's yeah. plenty of times where you can't hit a shot as well. So like the all, lids on the bucket sort of stuff. <laughs> that's right. So when you are in that zone, as they call it, you, every time you get the ball, your only thought at that time is not about money or am I a superstar. It's just like if I've got the space, if I've got the gap, yeah. it's going up and it's going up. So It's interesting. It almost Does it almost become a bit of tunnel vision, really? You're so focused on that game because we hear about we hear about the mind training of athletes down to you block out the noise. Like AFL players, they have to block out noise when they're going for goal shots and stuff, like any shot for goal, no matter how hard it is. And it, I'm guessing it must be the same for basketball, especially during free throws. I mean, the amount of noise that I've heard going to the Adelaide Entertainment Centre when a Melbourne United player is going for a simple free throw. Yeah. So... How did you go around that? How did you just get focused for the game each time? Well, you you talk about this stuff um, as a professional and, you know, I love all sports. I'll always be a sport head and, you know, if you look up the the longest putt to win a major, yeah, you know, people would think, oh, it must be 30 feet. It's only about eight feet. It, it's not a huge thing. But when you are in that those situations, so many thoughts come through your head. Just recently, you know, Jarek McVeigh, they interviewed before in the game. They said, oh, you're on record to have 90, 50, and 40, which is you're going to shoot 90% from the free throw line, 50% from the three-point or from the field and 40% from the three-point line. It's really yeah. hard to do. And you can tell, because I asked him the question, I reckon he tightened up because he had that in the back <laughs> of his mind. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. so oh, thanks. I, I yeah. wasn't thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> like his team, he admitted the teammates were ribbing him about it, but when it becomes a focus point rather than you just playing your natural game. So you train so much for so many moments that you just 
you try not to get caught up. If we don't get this, we're not going to win the championship. And that year you talked about my first year, we were I was so lucky. Didn't play a lot, got injured, came back, and we made it to the grand final, lost in two. Yeah. But I was, you know, two wins away from getting an NBL ring in my first year. So that was really a really, really special journey to be a part of, to go, wow, I've been in a professional sporting team that goes all the way. We didn't have success, but and uh, but that that's the disappointing thing too about people's mindsets where they a lot of sports will have a twenty year anniversary for the winners. Yeah. I've always thought, man, we had a great. I would love to go to a twenty year anniversary with those group of lads because we yeah. had a great journey. We just came up a little bit short right at the end. So, so you're so you're not one of those people who say my life is not complete because I don't have a ring. You know, no, it's, no. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I've I've heard that story so many times. I hear about all like I mean, there's certain AFL players we hear that because I didn't get the premiership. There's NBA players that said they never got the ring. I mean, I guess it's a bit maybe a bit different these days in NBA because you can almost pay for for tournaments these days basically if you want to really have that ring badly but so you never bought into that mindset like nah, this no no look i had a very short career and if you look at the stats around professional sport yeah the average is four to five years so i was sitting just below that average so yeah as i've gotten older older i'm just more uh, i guess happy and um content that i experienced it because not everyone experiences mm. it and you know there's only I don't have anything up in my house uh, around the old days except on the fridge there are the two basketball cards. So <laughs> they're like fridge magnets, you know. It's still nice. Yeah, it's still. So when, um, when my nephews and nieces and my own daughters rib me about never being anything, I'll always just go, well, you still made it. I've got, I've got a basketball card. So. <laughs> I love that. I, I love that. That's like the perfect comeback to anything. I'm like, you want a basketball card? I don't think no. so. No. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you say that you, your career doesn't last long. You still got the three to four years. I mean, like yeah. basically the average, which yeah. is still incredibly nice. Do you think you could have kept going if injury didn't come into it? So you've got so we had three seasons in Adelaide, and then you go into Hobart. So and then you basically, as you were saying, that injuries yeah. basically cut into it. Do you think you could have kept going if injuries didn't come in? Look, if I'm to be honest with you, I don't think I was that. I was I was good, but I wasn't great. And you've got to be great. Yeah, ongoing great. And I had my fleeting moments where I could be, get it done, like you said, how many points and however many minutes. But the great guys just do it night in, night out, every training. And I got to train with and against a guy called Robert Rose, who was just great the entire time. Mike Mackay, Scott Ninnis, yeah. Mark Davis, all those guys, they were just great the whole time. So when I was in Hobart, I had a really good year because I played – 21 out of 22 games, which yeah, I've okay. never done. And that's what I was going to get onto. I mean, your minutes instantly go through the roof from what we've had now. We, I mean, we were looking through the stats and basically we're like, all right, Hobart yeah. has really taken really the chance, I, yeah. I suppose. On they that. took a chance because I was definitely injury prone. There's no doubt about it. If you were to look uh, neutrally, yeah. he's, he's a risk. Yeah, exactly, which would have been really difficult, I guess, for those people. So... What what's that moment that you know that your career is over? And talk us through that point. At well, the that end of year I was starting and having really like my numbers were fairly good, and I knew I that that's a good thing to look back on and say to people, well, look, my numbers were pretty good that year. If you look back on, that's I'm pretty okay with that. But then with eight games to go, the Devils got thrown out of the NBL. Yeah, through no funding, just couldn't afford to stay in. So when you're going through things like that, and you're getting told that maybe you're not going to get paid and would, would you be willing to play for free, which we all said we would, and then we found some financial backing, but there was no guarantees the following year. 
you start, I started fielding calls from a couple of other teams, but they were the regional teams, like your Townsvilles, yeah. um, which was okay. But I just had that sense that it was coming to an end because, you know, I'm not chasing to be, I wasn't going to play for Australia, all that kind of stuff. So you just sort of wake up and go, well, where's my life going? And the interesting point is when I've uh, caught up with mates that I used to play basketball, then I share what I did with Connected Self and all that stuff, they always say, we're not... They're not surprised. They're going, that was always your journey. That you used to be king of the kids of the camps. You were the king of the kids with the kids of the autographs. You always took the time to speak to kids living with a disability in the wheelchairs and stuff. And I, I'd never reflected on it. And that's what my mum says all the time. She goes, you just talk to anyone. That's your problem. Um, <laughs> I don't but, think that's a problem. <laughs> uh, but that's that's that was my journey was to connect with people. Yeah, uh, it wasn't my my the universe. I'm, I wasn't here to be Mike Mackay. Yeah, or uh, any other great basketball, and my journey was definitely beyond that. So. It's, I think that's really impressive that you were able to really accept that because I know a fair bit of people wouldn't be able to accept that. And look, you have your moments. There's no doubt about it. And mm-hmm. even sitting here today, and you watch these amazing players go around, you go, "Could I? Was I? You know, uh, it's it's always going to be there." Yeah. Um, and as we said off air, you know, I think the important thing on the uh, the important thing when you you finish basketball, like there's some people, the greats, like your Damian Martins, he will always have a job in the sport because he was so great. So it's a career. Yeah. But you see a lot of athletes and you go around their house and their household, it's a shrine to themselves and their singlets are up and their trophies are everywhere. And I, my own personal view is that's what creates the struggle within because there's everyone has four to five careers in their life and yeah just because your career was on tv and flashlights and a lot of stuff comes with it it's it's no more important than someone that works in a day-to-day job that we call the normal life so exactly um so let's go back a little bit so we talked about that season in hobart i mean very successful season and then basically well we know the results sadly i mean Tasmanian basketball, really. Just a quick one on that. Are you happy that they got a team now with the Jack oh, Jumpers? Absolutely, like that is such a great part of the world. There are so many amazing people down there. Um, I would, uh, oh, I've spoken to my wife about it. if the right opportunity came up, I would definitely consider going down there and uh, and doing some work with the Jack Jumpers. Uh, it's just such a beautiful part of the world. A really good people. Yeah. Uh, and they not, really embrace basketball, can I add, I think. Yeah, they embrace people generally. Um, not, they don't have a lot of professional sport down there. That's the issue. And that's where I don't think you'll see an AFL team come up just because you need so many sponsors and, and seats <laughs> and sponsors and yeah, you need that difficult. membership base. And that's where basketball is probably the right sport for it to be professional. Yep. Um, the amazing thing down there, there's, that was 1996 the, and I was down there when the Martin Bryant Yeah day happened so there was it was such a a unique year that brought many people together so it's a great part of the world were you happy to be part of that year oh absolutely yeah some of my lifetime friends i got to play with david stiff darren smith and paul crombie and people i regard as mates for life you know they're just great people and coached by bill tomlinson and the manager bruce chalmers just good people Take a quick step back, just because I'm really, I am interested in this question. This is the Leavers podcast. Why do you have to leave the 36ers? Yeah, look, we had a coach um, that came over uh, from America, uh, Mike Dunlap, yep. who had an amazing uh, collegiate career. Yeah. Um, and there are certain styles of communicating with young adults, yep. young students that aren't transferable 
to dealing with professional athletes. <laughs> I can kind of get where this story is going to get to go, but I'm going to love the detail. So um, people forget in that year that uh, Mark Davis sat out again because he was going to leave because he uh, he he felt that there was a little bit too much intrusion coming from the coach around what happens off the court. Mm. Um, and in that year that I was sacked, it was the same year that Rob Rose left, Chris Blakemore, yeah. Minnis was gone. Uh, it was I, a very was volatile of, time. I was one of five or six, um, which disappointed a lot of people because we were all Adelaide base. But, you know, uh, the proof was in the pudding. Uh, two years later, they went on a massive run when they employed Phil as the coach and won two out of, I think, three. Yeah, I think, I think it is two yeah, out of three. whatever they won. Um, so getting – the way I actually found out I was sacked was reading the newspaper because um, <sighs> the day before that – so it would have been – so 18 hours before I read that I was sacked and I received a phone call to say, have you seen the paper? Yeah. I oh, know what's going on in the paper. Oh, you're not playing with us. So I was like, well, that's interesting because uh, four o'clock yesterday I was shook the hands of the head coach saying I was going to have another year. So I read uh, on the back page that I was sacked and the reasons why I was sacked because it was for medical grounds. And the other disappointing thing about that was that the doctors hadn't informed me those medical grounds as well. Yeah. And because I was young and silly, you know, in today's world, there was no doubt there'd be litigation. There are, we've come a long way in, you know, that type of world. But yeah. at the time, I didn't feel like I, I wanted to do that. And I had, a lot, I had a couple of people say, look, you could sue the organisation, do this, do that. But then uh, it all worked out when I went to Hobart. I, I received a really nice card from the old general manager, Barry Richardson, wishing me all the best and if there's anything they could do, they would. And, you know, for me, it was um, to, get, to, to go out that way, it's not ideal. But once again, that is the brutality of the industry of sport. Of professional sport. And, yeah. you know, you've only got to read what's happening in swimming today. In today's paper, there is a brutality out there that it's really not talked about a lot. When it comes out, it, it comes out. So... I don't, I don't dislike anyone for that moment because they, they were only doing their job. What I would have preferred was just a hot uh, eyeball and a handshake and say, mate, yeah. we're done. And that, that would have been okay. But it didn't happen. But I've seen all those people. I've given them a hug. I've wished them all the best and everything's worked out. So so there's no I'm not, like no, no anger towards the 36ers or anything like that or the, as, no, a, as an organisation? It took me a long time to go watch them play again. And people go, why don't you go to the games? But it's just like, well, when you leave a job, do you go hang out there? Like, it's Good point, actually. That's <laughs> a, I never really thought of it like and that. And look, I think as a, as a general, you know, feedback for the Sixers, I, I think traditionally they haven't welcomed their past players back as well as they could. Now... I'm small fry, man. I'm the smallest fish in a small <laughs> pond. You know, but there are some guys there that really have been let down, previous coaches, that they probably feel like they could be welcome back. And I think they are trying to do that a little bit. So I hope they do get it better. But once again, mate, it's just sport. If it's wrong or right in people's eyes, that's doesn't matter. Yeah. It's just sport. Um, just before we leave the 36ers, but so how did you get into the hope? into the Hobart, basically. But how did you, how did that call come around? It's because you're sacked, and now suddenly yeah, you're like, so, all right, let's move state. So there was another team called the Geelong Supercats that were keen, and um, I had to decide. And basically, I received a phone call from Bill Tomlinson, and he said, no, you're going to start for us, so you'll get a starting gig. We'll see how that goes. And that must be, like, really juicy. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm taking that deal. Yeah. <laughs> so got down there, and, um, you know, 
it was a really good good uh, good basketball experience, but it was just good life experience. Like, just it's such a unique part of the world. That's good to hear, mate. I mean, it's such a interesting basketball career. But finding out you're being sacked in the park, I can never imagine that feeling. Just finding out that your your job is gone, it changes your your whole lifestyle. Really, I mean, yeah, your family I, is also affected by this. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I think. On reflection, probably my mum took it the worst, like oh. um, that she felt I was treated unfairly. But at the end of the day, your mum doesn't train. She doesn't do – she was awesome. I was – here's something you should know. I didn't get my licence till I was in my th- second or third year with the sixes, so it was <laughs> – did she, she, she took you to the games, didn't she? <laughs> no, trainings and picked me up. And, <laughs> You've got all these athletes like Mike Mackay, Mark Davis with their Mercs and their Beamers. <laughs> Here's me waiting for my mum to pick me up from training and I'm part of the 36ers. So she was definitely invested in it. But at the same time, we just lost our sister. So it was almost part of our therapy. To, yeah. It was that outlet that we could all go to the games and, you know, my brother and dad and everyone could be a part of it. So How important is that outlet? Yeah, it's it's important, but it's, once again, it's it, – I think it's good because they know you and I think that was the strength of um you know having a good family that stood by you but we were also living through extreme trauma as well so I think the basketball may have taken our minds off it a little bit yeah it's good man and it's good that you've been able to get through that and your family got through as well like yeah it's a really good good point so it took took mum and dad a long time Um, so now they've got grandkids and stuff and you move on and 28 years later it's still difficult but you look back at photos now my mum looks better as a 73 year old than she did when she was in her late 40s going through um, losing her daughter so is in that in that situation was there anything that you wish you could do more you know for for your family in that time yeah, look, no, because when I left my scholarship uh, at the AAS and that was quite um, – that wasn't an easy process because the coaches there didn't feel that I needed to leave. Yeah. Uh, but in my heart, uh, I knew I did have to leave. Yeah. So I was grateful that I was able to train with the Sixers and continue with basketball as an outlet for my own mental health. Um, but, you know, you, you look back on events like losing a loved one, uh, watching her go through chemo was really, really tough. But yeah. uh, when you hear a 14-year-old girl say she doesn't want to die, that's worse than when she dies. When yeah. you look back on it, like to have that reflection that uh, you think, what would it have been like for her? Don't worry about me. How tough would it have been once you get that news, you know, you've got a few months left. Uh, having gone through it with my mother-in-law, um, it's tough when you're 66. How tough would that have been when you're... Yeah, building your own identity as a young person, you got friends, the world's at your feet. So, yeah, that's probably sadder than the actual event sometimes. Yeah, yeah. far out. It's a, with a, it's a, it's a, it's a strong story, mate. In, in that regard, and and it's, I know you're saying like not just you know look out like look out for your, like your sister and everything, but mm. it's a credit to your mum to yeah. get through that. So, wow. And now we get to. Where you are now, really, which is really exciting with the Adelaide Lightning. So you're the, you're the general manager? Yeah, look, I've been really excited. So thanks for bringing that up. And it was really interesting. So when I left Connected Self, I felt like I was pretty burnt out. Yeah. Um, and I took the rock and water training with me, which uh, I was grateful for. And um, so that meant financially I could work part-time because it was um, 
you know, uh, the training gives me that flexibility. Uh, so I continue to do some work with the Aboriginal Basketball Academy. I did some work at Westport Primary School. Yep. Um, and I was quite happy working two or three days a week and just doing the training. So I did that for about 18 months. And then um, two years ago, my wife got asked to be the manager of the Lightning. So the old manager, Margie Williamson, who did it for 17 years, who now is in the Hall of Fame for WNBL, uh, she uh, she loves Lisa because I'm best friends with her son. So she kept telling Chris Lucas, you got to have Lisa as the manager, have Lisa. <laughs> then he said yes to Lisa, but then uh, I can't remember the, the athlete's name, they said, this is three three seasons ago, they said, um, oh, Lisa can't be the manager because the import's girlfriend's coming with her and want her to be the manager as part of the deal. I thought They thought that would work really well. Word was it was terrible. <laughs> it didn't work it's out. It's honest. <laughs> yeah. uh, didn't work out uh, for the organisation, so Lisa got the gig. And so then when you're the manager, you really see... It's a beautiful role because you're not the coach, you're not the owner, you're not the general manager, yeah. but you get very close with the players and you're that neutral person that puts ice on them, cooks food for them, nurtures them, becomes like a second mother in, yeah. a, in a really brutal setting of sport. So Lisa's a, a yoga teacher, so she does it really authentically and with great warmth, so the girls love it. That's good. She's also a good, uh, you know, just a good sounding block for Chris and his assistant coaches. So then um, there's been a bit of a shift in the ownership with uh, Titanium getting sold. And without going too much into it, there was a, there was a handover with the, the general manager role. So going to a few Lightning games, I met Bruce Spangler and Bruce said, uh, would you be interested? And I said, well, I'm pretty happy. Uh, <laughs> let's go and have a coffee. So we had multiple coffees and in true Bruce Spangler style, he, he, he drew out the process. He didn't make it easy. And so, But as I went through the process, I was really enjoying learning from him because he's a very astute business person. Uh, he knows his stuff and he just lo- he has his passion for basketball. So, yeah. you know, I'm not never disclose the amount of coin he throws in, but without people like that, these athletes don't get an opportunity with the likes of Bruce Spangler. So I was really starting to admire. I was just like, oh, okay, cool. So then we had this final discussion about the number. Uh, and it wasn't <laughs> the number that I suggested. And so I said, all right, I'll give it a go. And not a word of a lie, I think that was March the 2nd, 2020, after first having a coffee in mid-January. So that was a drawn-out process, I thought. Um, But, you know, I was really, really happy. Signed the the deal. I said, look, let's do it for a year and we'll just see where it goes. And um, I think March the 9th, COVID hit. So that was, was really, really bizarre. So... That actually gave me an opportunity to. Obviously, the world went into that lockdown, uh, and you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't go to work, so I was just able to work from home. And what I was able to do through that process was just go right. This is great because I've got all this time on sleeve. This is what we need to do. So, did a lot of writing, uh, put a lot of stuff in front of him, talked yeah. about partnerships and strategic partnerships, and it's been a really really fun process. So, because of COVID, a lot of stuff got in the way. Um, you know, opportunity to play home and away games from last season. So we're really looking forward to this year because we're a lot of big excitement, a lot of big announcements have happened since then. And I think that's what the Adelaide Lightning need at the moment. It, when I met you, so for the people who are listening to this, me and me and Tim met at the um, Speak Good um, workshop with hosted by Jared Rolsch, and it was really interesting. We were talking about the Adelaide Lightning, how it goes into it. I want to ask you just some general Lightning questions yeah. because. 
Lions. The Adelaide Lightning seem to me, they are such a successful team and people really underestimate that in my opinion. Agreed. Do you think people only take an interest in the Adelaide Lightning when they're about to die? Because the sad thing is I have heard this story a lot. We hear on the news, oh, the Adelaide Lightning have got financial issues and on to the next one. And then everyone goes, well, we need to support the Adelaide Lightning. And then it all goes away. You know, it 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 saddens me that from an, I'm an outsider's view and I'm pretty ke- like, I'm a fan that keeps up with it. And I, I find it interesting that fans just disappear after a while when there seems to be no cause for them, you know? I mean, which is which is a bit crazy in the end because there's always a cause. There's a championship to win at the end of it. Yeah, it's a it's a really good point that you make, and that's a, a view that I tend to agree with. The more I've got into it, and when I first the first six months, and I started talking to people wanting to catch up for a Zoom and other things like that, um, in the in the start of my general manager journey, I was just constantly and reminded and surprised that people love the Lightning, and it's an established sporting brand. Uh, and it's one of the most successful oh, yeah. clubs and teams in South Australia. It's the most successful female sporting team here in South Australia. Yeah, that run then, from since '98. Yeah, it was, was huge. Reading. Yeah, and then but you've got some of the most well-known athletes, Olympic athletes here in South Australia. Your Rachel Spawns, your Aaron Phillips, your Jan Sterling's, your Joe Hills, uh, uh, your Nicole Seacamps, your Steph Talbots, your Laura Hodges. Like these people are well-known athletes. But where I think the disconnect happens is it's because funding and sponsorship is – Adelaide is a really unique environment where we have a population of 1.4 million and we have a lot of sporting teams here. Oh, we, we really do. We are really sport. In my view, as a sport fan as well, we are sport nuts really. And I, this might sound like a bit of a jab against Adelaide. I wonder if it's because it is one of the main things to do as a family when you get out or yeah. even when you think it's one of the most entertaining things we can see. Yeah, but if you you look at footy, footy's always going to dominate. But if you look at uh, VFL, there's only one VFL. There's five and a half million yeah. people. Here in SANFL, there's only one. There's only one and a half million. Yeah. So then you look at MBL one clubs. There's only ten MBL one clubs in Victoria. There's five and a half million people. There's ten MBL one teams here. There's only one and a half million. So the filter to get people to come to your games, the filter gets lower and lower to sponsor. So yeah. it's a really difficult thing. And I think the th- uh, thing we are seeing more and more sport, women's sport happen on TV. Oh, definitely. There's been an explosion. It, it has. And I, it, it is growing, but it's just trying to capture those markets which which are untapped. And it is a very difficult process. But, you know, watching the girls off the court, watching them on the court, it really is inspirational stuff. It really does make you want to get up and do your best and try and find them uh, as much uh, revenue as possible to keep their dreams alive. Because at the end of the day, these girls can go the athlete, uh, go the Olympics. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what we all forget, you know what I mean? And there is a lot of honour in winning a WNBL championship. I I don't understand. I mean, everyone wants to make the WNBA, obviously, but there is still a very good league in Genkyo. I mean, the the amount of talent we've got. Liz Cambage coming over here was a massive get for the league. Yes. You know, so I completely understand that. And this is why it's a hard question I'm about to ask you. The future of the Adelaide Lightning, is it bleak? Because let's be honest, there's been a lot of, as we were saying, a lot of the news about the Adelaide Lightning is if they're going to die or not, or if they've reached a grand final, you know, so. Yeah. Look, I would I would say, you know, if you, if you keep your ear to the ground very closely, 
there's a lot of sports that are bleak and there's a lot of clubs that are sitting right on the edge. So Adelaide Lightning are, uh, have got a lot of things that they need to do, but yeah. we've made a lot of ground in so many ways through strategic partners and some really amazing partnerships with Think Road Safety yeah. and Basketball SA in particular. Yeah. So they were two relationships that uh, Think Road Safety has been a, a really good supporter. One of the best, sorry, I shouldn't say, one of our supporters that, you know, quite often we can have a go at politicians. Minister Wingard is as good as they get. He really is a a really, really good bloke. He's pretty, I shouldn't say pretty, he's a genuine, authentic person who absolutely uh, loves the lightning. He loves the Thunderbirds. He loves sport in general, especially in particular female sports. So he's been great for us in the last 12 months, opening some doors. So the future's okay at the moment. Of course, we'd love to uh, be better, but I think we're going to be okay for the next few years. That's a nice positive thing to hear once, I think, compared to some of the negative stigma that we yeah. get around. So but not... to be honest, like anyone that's thinking of, you know, going and watching a game, you'd be surprised if you bought a family ticket and it cost you 30 or 40 bucks where that 30 or 40 bucks goes to. It's just, it's not a lot of money compared to some of the other sports you go to. Oh, 100%. But it goes such a long way. So what I think we haven't done well enough in the last few years, and no disrespect to anyone that was in management for Lightning, but basketball SA being that major stakeholder because you can't expect people that love taekwondo and volleyball to support the lightning no. it has to come within the basketball industry itself in in south australia and we've uh, formed a really amazing strategic partnership with basketball SA, in particular with the ceo phil sinnott uh, and all his staff and, and the executive commission who are uh, can see where other sports do fund uh, female sport that doesn't happen here. You know, the, the there are female teams here in South Australia that are funded quite heavily from their governing bodies. So if you take your football and your netball, that's a top-down funding model. Yeah. So a lot of money gets poured into it from the top. Yeah. Basketball doesn't have that luxury around Australia, so you've got to find funding models that work from the bottom up, and that your bottom up is your people that love your basketball. All right, man. I mean, we've we've been so through much today. I really appreciate the interview, mate. So we'll do some quick ones to end it all off. I mean, it's been a brilliant story. So, who was your favourite teammate to play during your career? Okay, it's always like this. Just we get these questions. You know, we always have basketball. We have sports. People go, come on. Who's your favourite? Who's the one you hate? So let's start it off. Who was your favourite teammate who you played? Well, I'm going to your... mention a few, like Chris Blakemore, David Stiff, Paul Crombie would be my three. Yeah, be your top three. Awesome. Um, if you could pick any player to play for the Lightning, who would it be? Steph Talbot. Oh, that's good. I like that answer. That's a good one. You wouldn't take anyone else from any other teams? <laughs> no way. No the way. The complete package. The complete package? Wouldn't be on and off the court. <laughs> Look, I'll be very careful what I say. But <laughs> as far as the, the 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 person that you're looking for for South Australia, you've got a, a young woman who would – anyone that meets her goes, wow, look at the way she looks. Like her body is just – in she's in the best shape of her life yeah she's uh she's a vegan by nature with her diet and her workouts are just incredible so when you look at someone as a role model in fitness sport and health you know you look at Aaron Phillips and go for a footballer uh for Taubes the way she moves uh, is amazing but more importantly off the court she's a better human being than she's a basketballer And you need great people in your organisation to be great. You can't be sometimes I'm good, sometimes I'm not. You just need great people. 
Taubes every day of the week. Jordan or LeBron? <laughs> <laughs> That's easy. Jordan. Jordan every day? Every day of the week. Is it just the markability or is it the plays? What is it about him? Look, uh, without Jordan, there's none of this stuff. There's none of you buying Nikes. There's none of these guys. And, <laughs> That's you know, the, point. <laughs> the thing about um, that era, like really my favourite player is Magic Johnson because I was a Lakers man, but Jordan's the greatest full-time. But there was, there was a sense of humility about those athletes back then. They never told you they were the greatest. The only athlete back in the day telling everyone they were the greatest was Muhammad Ali. Yeah, and that was, was a different sort yeah, of. yeah. Uh, the athletes of today are telling everyone they're great before people even get to judge them if they're good or mm. great. So, no, nah, Jordan every day of the week. Do you ever have a favourite basketball trip memory? <laughs> not, this, this could not be for this microphone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, there were there were so many, and that's where you form really great relationships was when you travel with people. So, similar to yourself, you've probably gone on a road trip or. Oh, yeah, yeah. There, yeah. <laughs> and you have a story or two over a few beers over somewhere, but uh, probably uh, I will tell one story about our manager and uh, Bruce Chalmers um, in a pre-season trip in Hobart where he was well and truly rotten. And uh, the idea of the manager is to make sure everyone gets there and safely and there's all these things you got to do and – Bruce, he tried to keep up with us that night and uh, stumbled into his hotel room at a very uh, <laughs> late hour only to wake up and we actually had to look after him on the trip back. So our head coach, <laughs> Billy Thompson, was far from happy with our manager who was green and being quite ill on a regular basis. So uh, that that one sticks out just because we can still room to this day that he was lucky he didn't get the tail. So Greatest player to ever play for the 36ers. This is always, I always get different answers to this one. But the main one I keep getting is Brett Maher. But who is who's your the best of all time? You think? Yeah, look, it's a, a great question, and different eras, different skill sets. Um, you know, you'd put Brett Maher, Mark Davis, and Rob Rose. Yeah. Um, as far as uh, Davis was just incredibly strong and uh, owned his spot, but as far as taking over a game, I think Rob Rose and Brett Maher are up there. Yep. But being, Brett being born and bred here, you go, he, he's our greatest and that's why his name's on the court. But I can say in my short time with the Sixers, the, some of the best games I ever played, no one was watching because they were training sessions because of Rob Rose. Like he was just a flat out, you had to win everything. And he was being quite narky with you if you weren't, if he felt you weren't training like you should be playing so you learn a lot of lessons off guys like that and i've caught up with him since robbie's one of the greatest guys but it'd be between those two i think yeah, yeah. with davis close close third last couple mate because we are on the levers podcast we look at how people have left their jobs or marriages whatever it may be do you think there's a negative stigma about leaving leaving things because i always get right we always talk about like people you're a quitter if you've left you're yeah, a quitter yeah, you know? yeah. what's your thoughts on that as we spoke off air, like it's one of those things that I've had in my head for a long time um, that not everyone has a positive experience when they leave and it's quite – there is an actual process required to leave in a, in a way that doesn't leave things in the background for people. Um, so, you know, whether you leave a friendship, whether you leave a job, whether you leave a company, whether you leave a basketball team, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing that needs a, a process and – it needs to be authentic and you're doing it for the right reasons at times, I guess. So, um, But in regards to a negative stigma, it, de it definitely depends on, you know, some people have to leave a relationship. Some people, 
you know, things happen. Just recently, uh, someone in the basketball industry gave up a very high-profile job here in South Australia because mm. of a very ill family member, and they have to go back to yeah. uh, Victoria. So, you know, those things, there's a need that you just have to. So depending on the situation, the stigma can be positive or negative, but it is something people struggle with, and I think people's mental health can suffer if it's not done the right way. And on the flip side then, can people get too stubborn and not leave when they really should? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's one of those, uh, yeah, in the workplace definitely, and I think that's that can happen. Um, and I think people, you know, um, it's really sad when you hear people say like when they're in the 60s, uh, society, you become invisible to people in the community and that that really saddens me. So when you do start getting to my age, 47, and you start thinking it's not long going to be 52 and not long going to be 58, that does sit in the back of your mind. So if you are on a good thing, then why why should you leave? Because you're closer to retirement than you are starting out. So it, that's quite interesting. But, yeah, no, I don't really le- – leaving is always going to have some level of complexity to it. Well, that's all I've got for you tonight. And it's, it's an amazing story. I think – Despite, I mean, it's interesting. I think we it's always interesting how we view athletes, especially ex-athletes, because they, and we talked about that, how people sometimes view themselves with the singlets on the walls and stuff like that in this case. But I think from your story, I get community and I get just driven to help youth, which is such mm. a, an important thing. And I think everyone can learn that. And even I'd even say to athletes, maybe like yeah, there is a world outside of sport. And I think you've been able to, do that incredibly well i think it's a real credit i think family as i say we're really lucky to have you as an employee and the fact that you were able to make your own programs to make your own companies you know that that to me says someone it's not just someone who thinks of the ideas i'm actually going to do my best to make sure they go out there into the community and do their job so well done to you mate thank Thank you for having me thanks for coming on the leafers podcast it's been a pleasure ah pleasure's been all mine thank you so much I'm really taken back by Tim Brenton's story because we really delved into a life of an athlete that had a drastic change and it really such an inspiring one because he cared for his community and for people that have really done it tough and especially when it's youth. it's I love those stories, the ones that the athletes where they go further outside of the court. I love the fact that he took his time of it, he developed strategies and he was even able to look back at the difficult times and change and adapt. That's a real credit to Tim and the the many companies he's working for and it's good to see there's cultural change happening. So I'd really like to thank Tim for his time and I really hope you got something out of that because to me, you should really be caring about your community, the people around you, people that need help as well and most of all be willing to adapt because that will make you stronger as a person and an employee. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of The Levers Podcast, and we'll see you next time. This was a Smashed Gnome production.